Welcome to this bonus episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. We want to share with you some of the questions we asked Shane at the live event. Enjoy. And thanks, Shane, uh, for your for your talk. Again, uh, in-house, make sure you raise your, your hands high if you, if you have a question. If you're watching online, uh, let's keep the conversation going. You guys can interact with one another through the live stream dialogue uh, box and then also ask questions of us uh, as well, as Chris said. So Shane, uh, wonderful talk and really appreciate it. I, um, I've always admired that you have this prophetic voice for peace and justice. And in your story that you've worked uh, alongside of, of Mother Teresa, you've been a part of numerous peace delegations, your work in the streets of Philadelphia, as you were just talking about, uh, is, is, is amazing. I just, was wondering about kind of the origins of this. You know, tell us a little a bit about your upbringing and, and where did this passion uh, and this fire get lit for you? Jesus. There uh, it is, yeah, there it is. I mean, I really, Next question. I, I did, I, you know, I, I was a pretty narcissistic, you know, uh, teenager. I uh, wanted to figure out the job where I could do the least amount of work and make the most money and go snowboarding as much as possible, you know, and that was kind of my my uh dream and then i i really did I, I i started falling in love with jesus i started reading the gospel and it it reoriented the things that i was running after you know i saw jesus saying if you want to be the greatest become the least i saw jesus saying don't worry about tomorrow live like the lilies and the sparrows you know love your enemies and all these things that like flew in the face of everything that i was running after and so i i remember hearing a a pastor say, if you find yourself climbing the ladder of success and status, be careful because on your way up, you might pass Jesus on his way down. <laughs> uh, so I, I started reorienting things. And, and, um, and in college, it really was these families, these courageous homeless moms that opened my eyes up and, and kind of derailed the trajectory of my life in some ways to really land in Kensington. And, um, and that's, that's where we've been for uh, since 95. Yeah. Well, and, that, but that, and that makes sense for me. At one point I heard, and forgive me for quoting you to yourself, I've heard you say that I've learned more about God through the tears of homeless women than any systematic theology textbook. Um, say more about yeah, that, that. that one goes over well at Princeton, you know, there you go. <laughs> and, uh, you know Duke Divinity. But uh, yeah. that, that, I, I, I did see that we're really good at crafting words on paper. We, but but uh, what I see in Jesus is something altogether different. And what, what's beautiful is there's this image uh, in John's gospel that the word becomes flesh, you know. Yeah. And literally I, what I see Jesus as is God the manifestation of God's love. Uh, mm. So I'm so grateful that we don't just have words on paper. We have the word made flesh. Or as my, my, my friend Bruxy Cavey says, uh, he's always kind of uh, winking at our debates over the inerrancy of Scripture. And he believes, he says, I believe in the inerrant, infallible word of God. His name is Jesus. Uh, you know, so that becomes the model mm -hmm. of our life. And, um, and, and uh, uh, so that's... Yeah, that, that's my theology. And I think, sadly, like what, what 
has happened to much of Christianity is we've focused on all sorts of other things and we've actually lost track of Jesus. Uh, right. Where even, even in evangelicalism, some evangelicals uh, are prone to support Donald Trump or they're uh, inclined to be for the death penalty. And, and the, those things are problematic to me because they seem so out of sync with mm-hmm. Jesus. And mm-hmm. I, I'm not judging Donald Trump, but I think like I look at the things that he says and then I look at the things that Jesus says, and I, I, I mean, there's a very deep disconnection from, like, Jesus saying, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor, blessed, you know, blessed yeah. are the peacemakers, and the, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I mean, they fly in the face of so much of what we've come to idolize, and not just Trump, I mean, mm-hmm. the Kardashians, or whatever, mm-hmm. like, stuff is most popular, I think, like, you look at Jesus, and you see something altogether different much yeah. of the time. Yeah. Shane, you have this contagious energy and just Red Bull. Red Bull. Red Bull. Red Bull. Right? (laughs) We'll make note of that. Uh, Sandbox Cooperative bought you by Red Bull. (laughs) No, um, it's (laughs) so optimistic, so full of energy. Where and when do you get discouraged? I, I do get discouraged when I don't know the best way forward for instance like it and in our neighborhood i mentioned that we've lost 150,000 jobs you know roughly 100 100 to 150,000 jobs well one of the replacement industries has been the drug economy and it's a massive economy at one point it was seen as the second largest source of income in kensington and that is toxic it's a toxic industry but it's also so difficult to just keep swatting at mosquitoes and, 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 and trying to keep people off of our corners without doing something about the swamp uh, that has created this. And so I, I know many of the young men that are sucked into the drug trafficking and I want something better for their life, but it's very difficult to like tell someone not to deal drugs on a corner if, they, if we don't have another dignified way that they can uh, pay the bills and take care of their family. So those things like can kind of feel like dead ends sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and um, but there's, uh, I think that's part of where I get encouraged is we've got a really big family, you know, and we need everybody's gifts, we need everybody's imagination and ideas. So we've got to figure out. Well, I mean, the, the elephant in the room in our neighborhood is trying to figure out how do we live with a neighborhood that has such a dense population of people, without that many living wage jobs uh, and we've got to either figure out how to how right. to uh, uh, create a local economy again or um, yeah so it's it's a big those those things are, are tricky to figure out you know um, and we don't have exact models for that I don't know exactly what Jesus would do uh, how Jesus would interact with someone that's addicted to heroin you know what would Jesus let them use the bathroom you know I don't know it's tricky, it's tricky you know because yeah. But we're trying to love people well, and we're trying to fall forward, you know, to make mistakes and learn and keep moving. And, uh, and there's enough encouraging stuff that the things that suck the energy out of us, like we hang out with kids and, uh, you know, plant gardens and do things that I think are, are also like just totally energize us as well. So, right, yeah. Right. And you've it's been a part of this tra- uh, transformation in the neighborhood and the community where you live over the past, you said, 20 years. Yeah, making making. I love the ugly things. Uh, beautiful, beautiful. It looks like we might have a, a question on online. Oh, actually, in house. 
Shane, what's your current view on engagement in the political process? Well, I, I, it, when it comes to political engagement, I think that Christians should be engaged po with political things, and I think we should be very peculiar in how we engage. Uh, I, I, one of the, the great temptations when we engage politically is that we think that this person or this party is going to change the world. So I think one of the great temptations with political engagement is that we misplace our hope. Um, and, and, uh, um, but I, I, I mean, I think that policies affect people and to love our neighbor as ourself means we need to engage around things like immigration or the death penalty or, uh, uh, the rights of sexual minorities and things like that. I think those are things that we, we need to care about because it's a part of loving our neighbor as ourself and, um, and policies affect that. They affect people that we love, um. Uh, but I don't think that policy, that's the only way we engage. It's, it's interesting because uh, devotion shares the same root as vote. And I think some of it is about where our hope lies and where our adoration is. And so we, we I think for Christians, we don't see voting as just something we do once every four years or something. But devotion and voting is something we do every day with our lives, with our pocketbooks, with our, you know, uh, wallets. And, and so... I think we need to see that we align ourselves with things every day uh, and, and, and not confine uh, political engagement to one day every four years or something, you know. Uh, um, so, you know, having said that, I think like local politics are really different too, like working on housing, working on building parks or a land bank or things like that in Philly, those feel a lot more natural. So my political philosophy has always been to... Um, uh, align myself with Jesus and to endorse no candidate, but to engage every candidate. So I believe in dialogue. I believe in engaging uh, conversation with people I don't agree with. Uh, I personally don't endorse candidates, but I, uh, I have endorsed Jesus, uh, you know, and, I, and, and that's what I'm aligned with. And I invite everybody else to uh, endorse the agenda of Jesus, which is about blessing the poor and blessing uh, the most marginalized. Um, and that's, that's what we're after, you know. Um, so we wrote a book called Jesus for President, and one of the things that we talk about is that the political identity in the early church, they were proclaiming Jesus as their commander-in-chief. It would have been as radical to say Jesus, when they were saying Jesus is my Savior, my King, my Lord, all of that language was already used for the emperor. So like literally in Acts, the book of Acts in chapter 17, it says these godless Galileans are coming and they're causing trouble everywhere because they're proclaiming an emperor other than Caesar. They're proclaiming another king and another kingdom. So uh, I, I think that's the peculiarity. Like we, we insist that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And our hope isn't in Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or Bernie. Our hope is in Jesus. And like we know what Jesus wants, so we're going to try to grab everybody else that we can to work towards those things. But I think that that alignment becomes really important. Otherwise, we end up mixing our faith and politics in a toxic cocktail, you know, uh, where my friend Tony Campolo says, sometimes we try to mix these faith and politics, and it ends up um, 
being like trying to mix horse manure and ice cream. And uh, it, it doesn't mess up the manure very much, but it sure messes up the ice cream. And uh, I think that's what we see when, you know, evangelicalism gets married to the Republican Party, or the Democrat Party for that matter. Yeah. Looks like we have another uh, in-house question. Hi. Um, so I guess... Uh, all this work that you've been doing, it's very impressive. Um, and uh, you no doubt uh, have first faced a lot of persecution uh, by, I guess, uh, your neighbors and peers and whatnot. Um, how do you keep yourself from becoming unnerved and you know just pushing through uh, like uh, during like some times that actually call for a lot of bravery? And <laughs> Thanks. You're very nice. Thanks for your words. I mean, I, I honestly, uh, I mean, you used a very, uh, a very big word, you know, persecuted. And I, and, and to be honest, I feel, um, so warmly embraced in our, like, I, I mean, my neighborhood feels like home. I'm proud to call it home. I'm, I'm in, inspired by my neighbors. Um, uh, we've had a few, you know, like, uh, we've had a few conflicts with the city of Philadelphia over the years, you know, but like we, we've gone to jail a few times. I had ended up at one point getting, um, I had, I got sentenced to go to citizenship training with sister Margaret, my 80 year old nun, so that we could have classes on how to be a better law abiding citizen. But, um, like, but I don't consider that persecution, you know, when I look at Pakistan or Syria or like the persecuted church around the world. I mean, I think that we're, but, but I do think that, that what, that we, I am excited because we're doing something beautiful together and it's certainly not just me. It's all kinds of uh, folks. Everything we've done for 20 years is in the context of community and, and uh, it's a broad family that's doing it together. And, and I think that's what we're, why, you know, Jesus' longest prayer is that we would be one as God is one uh, as a church. And, and so that's what we're really trying to build in our city. And it is exciting to, even amidst all of the divisions and, you know, in the church, um, to see a movement that ha in Philadelphia has challenged anti-homeless laws, that has challenged anti-immigration laws. We've had a movement of, the, of a sanctuary. Uh, it's called the New Sanctuary Movement in Philadelphia that's led by immigrants um, that are really pressing our government to have uh, better immigration reform laws. And so, like, our entire city council voted to... Uh, not uh, comply with the ICE deportations. So our city decided to uh, not deport people. And I love that, but it was led by the church. You know, when I think of Dr. King's powerful words, he said, the church is neither to be the servant nor the master of the state. The church is to be the conscience of the state. And I think that's what we want to do is wake up folks to these injustices. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's an honor to be a part of a movement uh, doing that uh, in our city and around the country. Thank you. Looks like uh, Chris was, was nodding. Uh, he has a question from online. Yeah, so this will bring us back a little bit, I think, topically. But I think it's something that a lot of people wrestle with, um, just kind of how do I make sense of this particular piece of it. So someone, someone wants to know, do you think being in the military can be a missional opportunity? 
Do I think being in the military could be a missional opportunity? Um, well, I, my, I'm going to say that I think that there are some, this is actually straight out of the, um, the, the early church tradition, was that when someone becomes a Christian, um, their career uh, needs to be submitted to their, their Christian calling. Uh, and so they would, the early Christians said, when someone goes to be baptized, we need to consider their vocation, their career. And there are some careers that we will find to be incompatible with the Christian um, uh, discipleship. And so they named those, actually. Hippolytus and the, uh, uh, the, the, the early church said things like working in the brothels, um, gladiatorial games, sculptors of idols, and then they actually named uh, military service. Those, who, uh, that those are things that we're going to find our dedication to Jesus comes in conflict with those, right? So now there's some things like that in our culture we would say, yeah, you own a porn shop and you become a Christian, you might want to rethink your job. You know, but we don't necessarily uh, raise the same questions if you work for a pharmaceutical company that's been notorious for abusing human rights, or if you work for a, a, a company that uses sweatshops, or if you work in the military. So I, th- I, I think uh, uh, that if you are dedicated to Jesus, it's going to make you a really bad soldier uh, because it becomes very difficult to love our enemies and prepare to kill them. And that's not just me. That's uh, my friend Logan Melaturi, who was a soldier in Fallujah, a number of uh, Ben, uh, Corey, other soldiers that I heard, I met uh, since they came back from Iraq. And they said, yeah, I just didn't feel like I could carry the cross in one hand and a gun in the other. It became like I was trying to serve two masters. So I think that that's a, it's a very difficult role, and I think those soldiers that are in the military, one of the best uh, ways that we can be missional in the military is by declaring that we are conscientious objectors to war and that we will refuse to kill. And there's tons of sol- soldiers. I've met some of them today uh, that have done just that. And I think that there are many, many other ways to try to uh, uh, rid the world of evil and, and injustice. Um, and uh, I, I just don't, I, I haven't found a way to uh, reconcile military service with Jesus. And when I look at the early church, they didn't either. For the first several hundred years of Christianity, uh, there was no record of, of being uh, uh, in favor of militarism or in, killing in any form. There are a few uh, questions in, oh, right here. I'm glad that last question, uh, just to kind of follow up with that. Yeah. Do you see a place for a military in a country? Maybe not for Christians to be involved, but what would be your, if you could kind of write out, what would be your role for the police department in a community and for a military? What would they, what would they do when you think of the injustices done to the weak and the poor and the ISIS kind of groups? How, how would you... Yeah, what would be your yeah. approach? <laughs> well, one of the things I will say is that, that what was in debate in the early church was whether or not you could serve in the military in a non-combative role, right? So that was a little bit more conceivable back then, too, because the military was responsible for everything, like building bridges and roads and infrastructure and everything. So, uh, But 
what the early church was very consistent on is that there, if there ever was a place where you were forced to kill, Christians would not do that, right? Um, so I think that that's a question now. Is like the problem is that that the the overarching umbrella is that you're a soldier first, you're a chaplain or contractor or whatever second. So I think those are those are really interesting questions, um, and I I personally think that there is so much work that we can do. Um, to diffuse evil without uh, uh, a military force. For instance, that what gave birth to the Christian peacemaker teams is exactly that. Uh, Dan Berrigan said uh, that it's not that we've tried the cross and it's failed us, but we haven't tried the cross, truly tried the cross with the same courage that we've tried the sword and the gun and the bomb with the willingness to die for it with the resources and imagination if we use the same uh, capacity for peace that we've tried war imagine what we could do and there's incredible books coming out on that right now Ron Sider a friend of mine uh, wrote a book called Nonviolent Action and it shows where nonviolence has actually worked to diffuse uh, uh, injustice throughout history. Um, so, and I do think that people may die. You know, I mean, you look at the early church, they died, like soldiers die too. So I think that the question, we can look at history and see that we can argue that violence has worked at times to stop uh, injustice and violence has failed and nonviolence has worked and nonviolence has failed. The, really the end question is which looks like Jesus. For those of us who are trying to follow Jesus, which looks like Jesus? And I think Jesus said so clearly, like greater love is no person than this than to lay down their life for, their, for, for others. Um, the minute that we try to take a life to save a life, I think it, it actually... Uh, diverges from what we see in Jesus. It still may be courageous. It still may be many things, but I think that uh, perfect love, as we see it in Jesus, has no place for violence. Um, and I think of groups like my, my friend Jeremy Courtney, who is literally risking his life with his family and his kids. They live in Iraq right now, and they run an incredible organization called the Preemptive Love Coalition. And what they found is that more effective than all the militaries and weapons and drones is saving people's lives through surgeries. And so they said, we will save any child's life. And they have 30,000 children that are waiting for surgeries in Iraq. And they have a team of, of doctors, a lot like Doctors Without Borders. And they're doing these life-saving surgeries. And they have these miraculous stories of how people are transformed when the life of their child is saved. Um, and they've had Muslim leaders with visions of doctors and imams and Muslims holding hands with Jesus in the middle of them. So, I mean, just miraculous stuff happening. So I, I think that's the kind of work that um, is going to lead closer to peace. And I, I mean, I think of, of the stuff that we saw in Iraq and the soldiers I met, they said, you know, we were told that we were getting rid of terrorism, but every time we pointed a gun in someone's face, we felt like we were creating it. Um, and I think we look at the, the hospital bombing in Afghanistan that's been in the news this week. Over 40 people were killed as the U.S. bombed a hospital. And you look at that and you say, that doesn't stop terrorism. That fuels it. And we've got to find better ways than uh, ending violence by mirroring it. Another question? Okay, so hopefully I'm not beating a dead horse here. Is there no limit to the pacifism that you're suggesting? Like Tolstoy suggested that, you know, 
if you if somebody is raping your wife that you would try to talk him out of it or something but like to not even in like a self-defense situation never nothing always love no physical violence in any way ever well so uh this is interesting i didn't know the conversation was gonna go this way this is fun yeah um <laughs> I didn't know I was in Texas. No, anyway. So, I'm just kidding. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, so I, I don't, I can't imagine what I would do in every situation, you know. But what I do know is that when I look at Jesus, um, there is what Walter Wink calls the third way that there is a way to diffuse violence that is neither fight nor flight. And what criminologists show over and over um, is that when someone's doing a violent act, they're prof- they're prepared, like there's something psychological that is ready for two responses, either for you to fight back or for you to try to run. There's a cognitive like readiness for that. So whenever something else happens, it totally throws that, that psyche off. And that's why we can see um, all kinds of stories. There's a whole book called Is There No Other Way uh, by Michael Nagler. It's showing like these instances where they found a third way, a way to create a hiccup in the violence, you know. Um, And I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing um, in the Sermon on the Mount when he gives these scenarios of turning the other cheek, you know, when someone tries to steal your outer garment or someone uh, makes, forces you to walk a mile or they, uh, uh, you know, hit you on one cheek is he's creating this scenario where we can create another way that is neither fight nor flight. It's neither cowering down nor standing our ground, right? It is actually a way to, um, to interact with that, uh, that evil. So that doesn't help with every scenario, but I can give you one concrete example. In our community, uh, I lived with uh, a young woman named Lydia, and she was on the train uh, uh, on public transportation, and a guy pulled a knife on her and said, Okay, here's what's going to happen. You're going to give me your bag and get off at the next stop, and nobody's going to say anything. And she, like, was this little spitfire Brazilian woman, and uh, she looked at him and she said, My name's Lydia. You don't even know me, and you don't know what's in my bag. It's got pictures of my family, addresses from Brazil. It means a lot to me. I don't know what you would do with any of that stuff. She said, I would imagine you want money. And there's no money in my bag, so why would I give it to you? She said, I've got $20 in my pocket, so I'll get that out. I'll give it to you, and you can get off in the next stop, and we won't say anything. <laughs> and, and, uh, and it worked, you know? Uh, so, so I think what we, what we hope for is this fearlessness um, that comes through the confidence in Christ um, and also that the fruits of the Spirit would be so rooted in us that we may even have an imagination that's beyond ourselves, you know? And frankly, I think sometimes we literally, as Scripture says all the time, we are not fighting against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. And so if we see it as that, is that we are interacting with a really dark spiritual realm, I think it frees us up to know that, that there's ways to interact. And that doesn't mean that every scenario is going to end like that one did, you know, but I, I, I cannot um, imagine a space for violence. I can't, uh, I, I would hope that I have creativity in every scenario. I don't know what that would look like, you know, and my, I rewrote a part of my 
uh, first book, and I had uh, uh, a little section of frequently asked questions, and uh, this is one of them, is what would I do if someone was trying to attack Katie? So I answered that, uh, you know, in a little bit more detail with this hypothetical situation, but then it ends by saying, Katie always gets mad when people ask this, because no one ever asks her what would she would do if someone attacked me, and Katie, quite frankly, would kick them in the nuts, you know, and uh, so, uh, you know, I, what, what do you do with that? Or the ovaries, you know, but anyway, so, yeah, no, but... Yeah, so I, I think that like, but you know, I look at, let me just say one more thing on this. Is like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? Um, who was known for his commitment to nonviolence, lives in the middle of Hitler's regime. And he ends up, uh, there, it's, it's a little bit contested history about what, how much he was involved in the assassination plot. But I think that it's fair to say that, that Bonhoeffer had some, something to do with the plot to assassinate Hitler, right? Now, what, is very interesting is that he never condoned that. In fact, he just the opposite. He basically said, "I'm going. I'm getting ready to sin. Um, don't anybody try to bless it or pray. You know, like, like I am willing to meet God with this sin. Um, I don't know what else to do with a Hitler. And frankly, uh, he ends up being a part of this this plot, um, and uh, and it goes terribly wrong. And there's a wonderful documentary with Hitler's secretary called Blind Spot. And it shows that when the bomb went off, it went off in such a way that Hitler was protected from the impact of the bomb. And after the assassination attempt, he went forward with more vigor and more confidence that God was actually sancti- uh, like blessing his mission to destroy the Jews. And then... Um, Bonhoeffer was assassinated, you know, so I think in that instance, like the cross lost. I mean, I, I'm not, you know, I, I don't know what I would do in the middle of Hitler's Germany. I think that I would probably do um, what the confessing church and the, uh, many of the Mennonites did. Some of them were um, kicked out of Germany for their resistance. Some of them were sent to concentration camps for their resistance. But uh, there's a community called the Bruderhof that was so unpopular because they were against the war and they were against Hitler. So they were kicked out of the whole country and ended up in Uruguay. <laughs> you know. So I, I mean, I, I don't know. But I, what I can say is even if we believe that there is a place for evil, for justified violence, we should still call it evil, even if we believe it's a necessary evil. Let's call it evil. Let's not try to bless, you know, wars and bombs, because I think when we do that, it becomes very dangerous to our, our theology. You know, I, I don't believe in a place for justified violence, but I, I think it's important to that posture. And it's, it's great that this month the Vatican held a conference to consider just war theory, the, the criteria f- with which the church has morally justified war for hundreds of years. And I think it's very likely that the Pope will write an encyclical um, uh, challenging that. Because in the end, I, I also believe that the, the just war theory was designed to try to limit uh, war. And sometimes what it's done is been used to justify it. And, and, but at the end of the day, I don't follow, follow Augustine. I follow Jesus. And I, I don't find any way to justify violence or even just war uh, in light of that. So. We have a question over here. Uh, I'd like to change the subject and make it a little easier for you. Oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I cut my dreadlocks. Okay, no, yeah, right. I heard you talk once before, and that two-day, 48-hour notice of the eviction of that 
church yeah it seems to me had a very interesting ending my recollection you didn't say anything about how that ended so yeah. could you tell us about that sure well th there were a lot of things that happened uh and uh, like the the uh the news was instrumental in, in showing the story. It was in the headlines, and, and they made it look like the church was kicking homeless people out, and that's because the church was kicking homeless people out, you know. And, uh, and so the, they, the, the, the strategy, the tactic became a little different where they decided to bring in the fire marshal and say it was a liability issue as in the interest of the family's safety. Uh, but uh, alongside of that, some firefighters came, and they said, the, the fire marshal's going to come, so we want to help you get ready. So they helped us get fire extinguishers and smoke detectors and exit signs, and we worked hard all night long. And the fire marshal came and was like, you guys did great, you know. <laughs> so that lasted, like this kind of battle lasted for months and months, and it, it ended by people saw it on the news and donated houses. I mean, all kinds of things happened. Many of those families are still dear friends, but they left voluntarily because it was never meant to be a permanent solution. I mean, there are kids and, you know, 100 people living with one bathroom in this, in this church. And so they left voluntarily and they walked to the mayor's office with a very beautiful human invitation and they invited the mayor and all of our city officials and all the archdiocese officials the church officials they said you have no idea what it's like to be a homeless mom with our kids but we want to invite you to walk in our shoes for a little while get to know our kids know our names our stories see that we cry the same tears you cry walk in our shoes a little while and then they took off all their shoes and they left them in a big pile outside the mayor's office with that invitation uh, and, and so that's, that's what really, uh, how that story ended and, and where our story began. Chris has a question from our online community. Yeah, so, um, oh shoot, I wrote it down. Here we go, all right. <laughs> so we've talked about a lot of kind of heavy stuff. I mean, it's pretty intense, it's a hard conversation, it's really difficult, it challenges a lot of our perceptions. So what does it take to make not dramatic, not cloud parting change, but what does it really take for us to just kind of say, here's where I'm going next? Yeah. It seems to me that the, the fundamentally what, what, what we have is we have a lot of people that uh, care about injustice, myself included, but we don't always know where to start because we don't know the people who are most affected by these things, you know? And so, um, uh, when I, I spent time at a very um, prominent uh, suburban church, and one of the things that I did was I, I asked, uh, I surveyed uh, folks in this church and many others. I asked them, did Jesus spend time with the poor? And like 95% of the, these folks, that they, they self-identified as Christians. And they said, yeah, 95% of them said, yeah, Jesus spent a lot of time with the poor. Later in the survey, I asked them, do you spend time with the poor? And it was like 2% said that they regularly had meaningful interactions with people in poverty. And I realized that like part of our problem is, is a relational problem. It's not that, that uh, folks who have resources don't care about folks who have little resources, uh, but we don't know each other very well, you know? And, and I think that we've got to get in spaces where we get to know folks who are struggling. Um, and uh, until... Uh, 
poverty becomes personal. Uh, we, we can't make it, you know, there's nothing that fuels a fire in us like knowing people who are victims of injustice. And, uh, and I think it's also true with race, you know, that Martin Luther King lamented that the most segregated hour in the world is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Well, that's not going to change until our dinner tables and our living rooms change, you know, until we have uh, relationships where those of us who are white folks are put, deliberately put ourselves in places where we are a minority sometimes. Won't be long before we don't have a choice, so we might as well get some practice, you know. So I, but I think those things, like, those are, like, very real moves. We can worship in communities where um, we're a minority, those of us that are, that are white. We can uh, be in places where su- we're, we're submitted to people of color and other leaders. And I, I think uh, when it comes to poverty, sometimes we've got to get in places where we can just meet people who are on the streets. Um, sometimes it means just stopping and, and being present with people that we meet. But uh, um, yeah, Mother Teresa at one point, they said, how'd you manage to lift 50,000 people off the streets? And she said, I started with one. That worked pretty good, you know, and I, I think like like part of sometimes we get intimidated by the, the immense, you know, problems. But I think that, that, that injustice has names and faces, you know, and we've got to know the names and faces of those who struggle. You know, Jamar Clark, we, we, we know like these things exist. So we've just got to get in places where we can get to know uh, those people and those families. We have two questions sitting here, but I have to go. I have to go to the back of the house here first because they have been so quiet this whole time, and I need to hear from them. Uh, thank you very much for a very engaging conversation tonight, and um, uh, thank you for sharing about the community that you're a part of. And uh, the Acts Two community can sometimes be lifted up as an idealized version of Christianity, where there's no conflict and everyone just kind of hangs out and is cool with each other all the time. So I'm kind of wondering how you address conflict in within your community. Yeah, well, so first of all, I think it's important to be accurate about the Acts 2 community, and they're bickering, and, you know, like you, you read Acts, and it's not a perfect thing. Like, they're, they're, there's egos at stake. I mean, you fast forward just a couple of chapters, and, like, you got the story of Ananias and Sapphira. <laughs> so you're like, yeah, everybody's sharing everything in common. And then two people didn't share and they lied about it and god struck them dead <laughs> you're like golly that is not a good day you know like, like can you imagine if that happened in your church you know you're like how is church this morning not good you know? like, yeah you know so i i think like the it, there, there are those stories too you know um and and uh uh, but, you know, in our community, it's, it's, it's different now than it was when we started. I mean, we started with 20-year-olds that were piled in a house and, you know, had this romanticism and vision for changing the world. I mean, we still got some of that, but we're like, much, we have a lot more elbow room now. We've got like a dozen uh, houses and garden properties all on the same block. So we're kind of spread out a little bit and we have ways that we can come together and, and work in the neighborhood. Um, but there's still conflict, you know, and I, I, I would say... There's two very practical things that might uh, be helpful, you know, with your question. And one of them is straight talk, is talking directly with each other. That there's no room for what uh, St. Benedict called murmuring, uh, speaking negatively. And uh, the church is really good at that, amen? Like, like uh, you've been in any board meeting, you know, like people talk negative. So he said, like, murmuring is different than gossip. It's just talking negatively about someone. He said, there's absolutely no place for that. 
in the Christian community. It's poison. It rots out the foundation of the church, like the community. Uh, and, and so he also said, uh, you know, if any of us hear someone murmuring, we have a responsibility to uh, uh, nip it, you know, and, and to actually like bring people together. So if someone's complaining, and Benedict even says, um, it doesn't take away from the validity of someone's murmuring. They may actually have something to murmur about. You know, they may be like, man, Jonathan never does his dishes. And Jonathan may genuinely have a dish problem, you know, <laughs> but what they've done is more toxic. We can figure out the dish problem, you know, but that negativity of murmuring is actually poisonous. And so we've got to make sure we don't have space for that. So I think that's really helpful for any church community to make a commitment to straight talk, to not talk at or around each other and no space for murmuring. And the other is confession, to have a space. I mean, a lot of the church sees confession as a sacrament, right? That when we say we're sorry, there's something that heals within the community. Uh, uh, so I think we've got to actively make space to say we're sorry to each other, um, for com confession to be embraced. And there's something that when, when someone says they're sorry, it creates a vulnerability and a holy environment in the community because you just don't want to beat someone while they're already down there and they're saying something. So I think it actually opens up other people's hearts to say they're sorry. That's why a lot of great revivals have begun with confession, with people saying, you know, beating their chest and saying, have mercy on me, you know, forgive me for this. And so I think that's, uh, those are two things I would say, a straight talk and confession are things that have held uh, a lot of our relationships together. Yeah. We uh, only have a, f man, time has just flown tonight. Uh, for me, I mean, you've been working. Um, no, it's, it's but, good, uh, it's good. <laughs> but time has gone so fast, and I just uh, want to have an opportunity for you to share about the things that you're working on now, and uh, particularly, I'm thinking about your book that you have. It's coming out soon. Oh, wow, that's like a softball pitch Boom. for the, uh, right, right yeah. there, right there. Well, it's a natural it's a natural outbirth of some of this to think about um, what does justice look like? Because I think of nonviolence, I think of living in a world of ISIS, you know, or living in a world where people are doing really horrific things, terrorizing things. Um, and um, what does justice look like? And the biblical idea of justice um, is, is actually justice and righteousness are together, uh, the same word, the same concept, right? And one of my friends who's a lot smarter than me because he reads the Bible in the original languages, you know, and he says, like, the best translation that we have is restorative justice. That God's justice is about not just getting what you deserve, but healing the harm that was done. How do we? So I've been working on this book that is really about restorative justice and grace and redemption um, and the death penalty. Because um, I think the death penalty is a lens through which we can see um, uh, so much of how we understand Jesus, how we think of justice. So I, I've been doing a lot of listening, and I wrote this book uh, called Executing Grace that uh, comes out next month on uh, in the first of June, and um, oh, it's it's been it's been a, a real um, incredible thing to I, I've interviewed a lot of folks who were victims of violent crimes. And for various reasons, many of them because of their faith, they've just found that execution uh, is not the best form of justice. And in fact, there's something um, fundamentally wrong with killing to try to show that killing is wrong. Um, and, and so they, they've 
um, groups like Journey of Hope and Murder Victims Families for Reconciliation, Murder Victims Families for Human Rights. They've become just heroes of mine. Um, so I listen to a lot of their stories. I tell a lot of their stories. Um, and one of those stories is right here in, in uh, Minnesota. It's a, it's a, I know you don't have the death penalty. You got rid of it like in 1911. You're way ahead of the, you know, the curve. But, um, but there's a woman, Mary Johnson Roy, right uh, in Minneapolis, and her son was killed. And um, terribly, I mean, he was a teenager, he was, he was killed, and um, obviously her first response was the harshest, you know, form of justice possible for the guy that did it. Uh, but then the Spirit of God really started to stir in her, and, um, and she also had this kind of supernatural uh, experience where she was reading, she was reading a poem um, that's, it's anonymous. No one knows who wrote it, but she gave me a copy of it. And it's this beautiful poem where these two heavenly figures are talking to each other. These two kind of angelic figures are there. And they're both women. And they can tell by the, tr- the, the, the blue tint of their crown that they lost their children. Um, uh, that, by, that, that their children died while they were alive in the world. And uh, the, the one discovers as they're talking that, that she's talking to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And she's, you know, stunned. And she says, you're Mary, the beloved Mary, the mother of Jesus. And Mary says back to her, and who are you? Tell me about yourself. And she says, I am the mother of Judas Iscariot. Judas who betrayed Jesus and hung himself, right? And, and Mary Johnson Roy here in Minnesota, she said, when I read that, I realized there's another mother and I want to get to know her. And she got to know the mother of the young man who killed her son and they became partners. And they started an organization called Two Mothers. One leads a support group for mothers whose children have been killed and the other leads a support group of mothers whose children have taken life. And I look at that and the restorative justice of that. And, and uh, these stories are they're right here, you know, in, in Minnesota. They're all over. And so I think those stories need to be told. And that's why I, I wrote uh, Executing Grace. And, and it's also true, the urgency of this, you know, because I, uh, I mean, it, it, even as we speak, there's folks that are facing their execution and, and some of those for things that they continue to uh, insist on their innocence. And we have, you know, like 160 folks now that have proved their innocence after 20 or 30 years of being in prison for something they didn't do. So there's all kinds of other issues. And, um, but at the heart of it all is really the question, is anybody beyond redemption? You know, even someone who has done something terrible, are they beyond redemption? Uh, um, and, and as a Christian, uh, I, I have to say that if we, if we think that someone's beyond, even someone who's killed someone is beyond redemption, then we've got a problem with the Bible, starting with Moses. <laughs> you know, like one of the first murderers was none other than Moses. And then you got David that killed Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, after she, he committed adultery with her. And then you got Saul of Tarsus, right, who killed, uh, went door to door trying to kill the Christians in the early church, oversaw the execution of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. And like by every definition was an extremist. I mean, you know, Saul looked more like ISIS than a saint. And, uh, and yet 
Jesus gets a hold of him, you know, and he has this radical conversion. So I, I think, you know, the Bible would be a lot shorter without grace. And I hope that we see, you know, a whole movement of Christians uh, throughout our country that are saying no to the death penalty and seeing this as a really important pro-life issue as well. Shane, thank you so much for your time yeah. today. And uh, Great playing in the sandbox with hey, you. Hey, anytime, anytime. Yeah, you know what? You're a storyteller, and you're making these stories live of, of, of the people from various walks of life from around the country and around the world, and thanks for making them live uh, among us today. Thank you, Shane. Please watch your step as you exit the sandbox.